Okay, good morning. This uh, Shabbos we have the privilege of reading Parshas Mishpatim. We'll do what we do each and every week, which is give a brief overview of the Parsha and then delve into the verses. And actually we're going to, uh, to do something unusual, a little deviation from our normal practice. Parshas Mishpatim is very difficult to summarize because it's not really a narrative in the sense of an unfolding story as we've been used to reading throughout Parshas and Shmos heretofore. But rather Parshas Mishpatim is a long litany, a long list of laws. It's fascinating. We go from except we go from this incredibly spiritual height, the seminal experience of receiving the Torah on Har Sinai, something that we recreate. Those who studied last Shabbos afternoon, by Salavechik's interpretation, why we stand for the Aseris Adibros, we read them with the Tam Elio, we read them with the cantillation, which indicates that we're not reading when we read the ten. It's also a misnomer to say ten commandments. I went. We had a we had a men. I just came back uh, two thirty in the morning this morning from our little men's club trip to uh, New York. So it was fantastic. Thirty six incredible hours. So we went on Monday. There's a Dead Sea Scroll exhibit in New York, the Discovery Center. Really, really fascinating. So there they have actual fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Ten Commandments. Incredible. You could read them. Dead Sea Scrolls, two thousand years old. We almost lost. You know, you know the whole story of how we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's not our topic. I'll just 30 seconds because it's fascinating. But you know that in 1947, a Bedouin shepherder was... Uh, one of his sheep had strayed and run into a cave. And in order to try to get the sheep out, he threw a rock into the cave. But instead of the sheep coming out, he heard a crash of pottery. And when he went inside to look, he saw that embedded within the wall were all these jugs. And he came back the next morning when it was lighter, and he found in these jugs rolled up scrolls. And he knew that it was important, but he had no idea what it was. He actually went to... Uh, some member of the clergy he knew and sold it for like a, the equivalent of a hundred bucks. And, uh, and then that ultimately got sold through an ad taken out in the Wall Street Journal. Is anyone interested in buying this scroll with clearly an old... And these, the, of course these Israelis soon-to-be government wanted to buy it, but they, weren't, they couldn't... This, this Arab merchant wouldn't sell it directly to them, so they had to create a whole front in order to be able to purchase it. They bought it. The scroll of Yeshayahu Anavi, of Isaiah the prophet, prophesizing the Jewish return to the land of Israel. You know when it came into the Jewish hands? The night of the declaration of the state of Israel. It's unbelievable. If that's not... Anyway, so... so uh, and then they get the rest of the fragments. But listen to this. So they went back and they checked. They found three more caves and they found all kinds of other scrolls and fragments. In one of the caves, they found literally thousands of little pieces that they would have to put together as a puzzle. They had no idea what they had. The oldest written Bible, 2,000 years old, from the time of the Second Temple. This is their, their scrolls of, of our Tanakh, and more. So th- they have pictures from in Israel, in the corner of a museum, they dedicated a room. They're sitting there with these thousands of, of, of pieces of the scroll. They're smoking cigarettes. The sunlight's coming in the room, and they're using scotch tape to piece it together. Anyway, so it's a miracle we have what we have. So one of, one of the things in the exhibit... It's incredible. One of the things they have in the exhibit was the Aseris Adibros. Aseris Adibros is really the ten sayings. According to some Rishonim, there are as many as 14 commandments in the ten sayings. So it's not really ten commandments, it's uh, ten sayings. So we went from the seminal event last week, and uh, we recreated it last Shabbos. Rather than just our normal reading of the Torah, we all stood because we recreate the Harsinai experience. It's an incredible height. And where do we go from this amazing spiritual high? Do we sit down and meditate? Do we do yoga? Do we all of a sudden float? And no, we go into this Parshas Mishpatim, which is a long list of civil, criminal, tort, law. Every law known to man. Beginning with the laws of every and every Kanani, Jewish servitude, which is so often misunderstood. We're not going to take the time to make sure you understand it today. But on your own, you could read it. Murder and manslaughter. What are the laws of murder and manslaughter? The laws of killing a slave. The penalty for bodily injury. If two people are in a fight and one hurts another one, what are the penalties? Death caused by an animal. What happens if my ox gores? My responsibility to supervise, to oversee um, my animals, my property. What happens if my, you could substitute ox for my car? I bang into someone else's car, it was moving, who was moving, it's the car's fault, my fault. A pit, a board b'shusarabim. You leave a pit open in the middle of the street. I just, uh, my oldest daughter, in anticipation of her bat mitzvah, we started Sefer Achinach. So we had done, we were up to this mitzvah in Parshas Mishpatim of a pit. And it was a summer, we were walking in Yerushalayim, and there was a, literally, a, just an open, deep pit 
nothing around it. She said, look, Abba, it's a Bor Bershazarabim. It was uh, seeing it come alive. So you're not allowed to. You're responsible to make sure to protect other people. We don't live a life where we say we only care about ourselves. Animals damaging property, self-defense, laws of Shomrim. We have four different types of Shomrim. It means if you give me something to watch, I could be, or, or four different versions of my supervising a piece of your property. It could be because I borrowed it. I'm a Shoal. It could be because I'm a Shomer Sachar. You paid me to watch it. It could be I'm a Shomer Chinam. You said, hey, could you do me a favor and watch this bag while I go into the restroom? And it could be I'm a Socher. I rent it from you. So each of those four different uh, ways that I arrived at having your property bring them with them different levels of liability. If I'm doing you a favor, you say to me, could you watch it for a minute? I'm doing you a favor. I obviously have a much lower threshold of liability than if I rent it from you. Right? So in terms of what happens if there's an accident, which was beyond my control, do I have to reimburse you the expense? Well, it depends. Was I watching it as a favor for you or did I rent it from you? Did I borrow it from you? Did you pay me to watch it? So these are the Dalit Shomrim. That's all from our Parsha. The laws of borrowing. Um, we have in, interspersed within the laws of sensitivity. You're not allowed to cause pain to a widow or an orphan. It's an incredible chizkuni. Chizkuni says almana, which is the word for a widow, comes for almana, missing a portion. And the chizkuni says the idea is not just limited to the widow. It means anyone that we look around and we see they're missing something in life. They're desperate to get married. They're desperate for a child. They're desperate for a livelihood. They're desperate for inspiration. They're desperate for socially fitting in. They're desperate for that person. We have a Torah obligation to express deep sensitivity to them, never to cause them pain. So uh, interspersed within the, the criminal law, the civil law, is the mandate to display kindness and sensitivity. Fascinating. You don't see this in American law. You don't see it in any other legal system. Every other legal system simply talks about my liability, if I hurt, damage, have to pay back, so on and so forth. It doesn't mandate, or essentially every other legal system mandates not to be a bad person. Don't steal, don't murder, don't damage, don't... Only the Jewish legal system mandates not only don't be a bad person, it mandates to be a good person. What does it mean to be a good American? If I ask someone on the street, are you a good American? Yeah, I'm a good American. How are you a good American? Oh, I... I don't steal, I don't uh, hurt, I don't damage anyone, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. That doesn't make you good. That just means you're not bad. Torah teaches us, mandates, not only to not be bad. It's not good enough to not be bad. How are you good? Lending money without interest, extending free loans, integrity of the judicial process, sabbatical, the uh, Shemitah year, the three pilgrimages that we go to Yerushalayim. And uh, Hashem promises us we're going to go quickly. And then we have, only at the end of this week's Parsha, we're not spending time on it this week, one would have expected it in last week's Parsha, but Nasa Vinishma, the famous expression, we will accept, and then we will listen, only appears at the end of this week's Parsha. That is a brief overview of this week's Parsha. What stands out to me each and every year that we read it is, Torah, for Judaism, spirituality is expressed in the mundane, in the here and now, in the actionable world. Spirituality, yes, there's great spirituality to be found in meditation. We actually had a meditation minion for the first time last week. We were a group of men before Mincha, um, sat for 15 minutes. Dr. Moshe led them in meditation, bringing them into Mincha, which is really sounds kind of new wave and, and, and out there. It's exactly what the Gemara describes, the Hasidim Rishonim, the rabbis used to do. Literally, the Talmud describes they would meditate, it describes for an hour before they davened. How do you get from a position of the hustle and bustle and the chaos of the day to being able to talk to the Almighty and feel in His presence mm-hmm. takes meditation. So one would think, what spirituality? Ooh, meditate, yoga, look at the sunset, incredible views. You know what the Torah says? That's true, one can experience highs, but it's very hard to remain on the high. You know where genuine, real, authentic spirituality is? The laws of Parshas Mishpatim. How do you lend money? How do you avoid damages? How do you make sure to display sensitivity? How do you uh, show kindness to somebody who doesn't have access to money? How do you... All of the detailed laws in the, here, in the everyday, that's how you display real sensitivity, real spirituality. You could be out there and floating and meditating and praying, and then you put that down, you go to work, where you're a ruthless, disgusting... Uh, <laughs> dishonest, lacking integrity, manipulative, no good, reject. And that's not spirituality. Spirituality is taking the the amazing davening and going to work 
and extending free loans and living with integrity and honest weights and measures and, 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 and you nicked somebody's car leaving a note on their, on their windshield because you're responsible for their damages and so on and so forth, a million and one examples. So that's, here you have sandwich between Parshas Yisro, we receive the Torah, and then we're going to have now the giving of the Mishkan, the place of great spirituality, and sandwiched in between we have Parshas Mishpatim, our Parsha, which is just a law book. It's like going back to law school. You're just sitting and studying dry law. But the answer is, because in Judaism, true spirituality is found not on the top of Mount Sinai only, nor in the Mishkan whence it's built. It's found in the everyday workplace and supermarket and gym and home and so on and so forth. Okay, so what I want to examine today, chapter 21, verse 18. Chapter 21, verse 18. Any doctors in the room? We have our... We have our uh, a few practicing doctors. We have our researcher, Dr. Levy. We have, we have a few doctors here. Okay, hopefully none of them will... You'll still all be talking to me by the end of today. Okay. Mothers and wives. Right. Okay, chapter 21, verse 18. Mixed in in this litany of law is the following scenario, the following case. Two men are in a fight. Hard to imagine, right? But two men got in a fight. And one person strikes the other. How? With a rock or with their fist. Now they weren't uh, Mike Tyson, so the second guy didn't die. It was a Jewish punch, you know, it, uh, it barely grazed him. So what happened? The victim, the one who was punched, is incapacitated. Doesn't die as a result, but becomes injured, incapacitated. So what do you do? If he gets up, the victim, the one who was punched, and goes about under his own power, in other words, is able to stand up and walk and recover, even if they retain an injury. So the perpetrator, the the perpetrator is let free. But Rakshivtoyitain. He has to pay for the loss of time. The guy who took it in the noggin was out of work. He was laying in bed for a week, recovering. So there's a loss of wages. And he had to go to the doctor. And because it wasn't contraception or an abortion, it wasn't mandated that he had to be paid for, so he had to pay. That was tempted some political humor. Thank you all for your very kind and gracious reaction. So he had to pay. So who's going to pay the doctor? We get in a fight. You punch me in the face. I got to go to a doctor. I miss a week of work. So the Torah says the following. If when you punch me, I didn't die, you're free. You're not going to be incarcerated forever. You're free to go. But you have to reimburse. You have to pay for my medical costs and for my lost wages. In fact, not only those two things, but Mishnayis and Babakama, so Tractate Babakama deals with based on these verses. How many things need to be reimbursed? Five. Five things need to be reimbursed. So let's look at these psukim. Says Rashi, Why was this explained? We already had right beforehand, or we already have in this parsha the deal of two people getting a fight, one kills the other, what are the laws? So why is this said? So We already learned that if one person punches another in the eye, what has to be paid? Ayin tachas ayin. An eye for an eye. And we know that rabbinical law jumps in and teaches us, our oral Torah teaches us, it doesn't literally mean if you injure my eye so that I can't see, we now pluck out your eye. What does it mean? Ayin tachas ayin. The value of an eye. We estimate the value of sight. What is the difference of my value? I used to be able to see out of two eyes. Now I can only see out of one eye. How does that lower, diminish my value? If I was a doctor who did surgery, that's going to diminish my value greatly. And so on. So it's relative to the person. So ayin tachazayin doesn't mean literally you reimbur- we extract your eye because you injured my eye. It means we estimate the value of the loss of my eye. You have to pay. Lo lamadnu ala evarav. Aval sheves lo lamadnu. So I know that if you injure me, you have to pay for the value of the loss of my eye. How do I know that you have to pay for my lost wages and medical expenses? So the Medrash says, that's why we have this Parsha. What are the other five? We, have, we said there are five in total. One person injures another, five damages need to be paid. What are the five damages? So we said, lost wages, one. 
Medical expenses? Two. What else? Tsar? Pain? Three. Boshes? Embarrassment? The humiliation? If I have to walk around with an eye patch, if I have to walk around with missing a limb, there's a level of embarrassment of humiliation. So we have Tsar, Boshes, Ripoy, Sheves, and Anezek. The damage itself. The damage itself. So the damages, those I'm worth less because I lost an eye, let's say. So there's damages, humiliation, pain, lost wages, and medical. How do we know these five? What? How do you assess how much time? So the Gemara and Baba, you have to learn the Gemara and Baba Kama. The Gemara and Baba Kama goes through how to estimate all of these, uh, each of these. Each of these things. The Pasuk says, The victim didn't die, but was injured, so they were incapacitated. Says Injured to the extent that they're incapacitated, they can't work. So what happens? If they recover to the extent that they could walk on their own, they could walk out of the hospital, get out of that rehab center, on their own, so then, v'nakeh amakeh, says Rashi, v'chita le'aldatcha she'yaharag zeh shelo'harag. I understand. Why'd the Pasuk have to tell me that if the victim could get up and walk out on his own, then I don't perform capital punishment, I don't kill the perpetrator. Of course I don't kill the perpetrator. If I don't always kill the perpetrator, v'chita le'aldatcha she'yaharag zeh why would I kill someone if he didn't kill? So why'd the Pasuk have to say, v'nika, he is absolved. He no longer is liable to the death penalty. Of course he's not liable to the death penalty if he didn't kill. Says Rashi, This is the Torah source for prison. There's a Torah concept of prison. What happens? Two guys get in a fight. A punches B. B is rushed by Hatzalah to the hospital. We don't know what's going to be. If B will die, A is liable to the death penalty. It's a murderer. If B recovers, A goes free. Just has to pay the five things. Does A have to pay the five things, by the way, if B dies? In other words, A, Ruvain punches Shimon in the head. Shimon goes to the hospital two days later, dies. Shimon's children come to Ruvain, or Ruvain's children, and say, Look, your dad owes us for the five things. So you have to pay the five things if you already incur the death penalty. We'll see in a moment. So, anyway, the, so what happens? If we're unsure, B, Ruvain, Shimon goes to, to uh, the hospital, we don't know whether he's going to make it or not. What do we do with Ruvain in the meantime? We put him in prison until we see. And only once Shimon recovers to the point that we know he will survive, then and only then do we release Ruvain, but Ruvain remains liable. Rak Shivto says Rashi, Bito Malachto Machmas Choli, you have to pay for lost wages. Im Bito Malachto Machmas If he lost the use of his hand or his leg, we see how much less is he worth, based on his profession and so on. Kilu Hushomer Kishuim. We average it. Let's say he was a guard of cucumbers. Shariaf. <laughs> So the lost wages is in, a different, in addition to the payment for the loss of the use of the limb. That's, that's one thing. Nezek, that's one of the five, pays me for the loss of the use of my limb. On top of that, it's lost wages for the fact that I couldn't work. And then you have to pay the cost of the medical care. Okay, that's Rashi. Says the Balaturim, Im Yakum, we said if if Shimon gets up and recovers, then Ruvain doesn't get the death penalty, he just has to pay the five things. Says the Balaturim of Yaakov ben Asher, Verse 19 begins with the letter Aleph and ends with the letter Aleph. Im Yerapei begins with an Aleph, ends with an Aleph. Why? Yerapei Lomalacha Shakarish Borhu Shalech Yisurin Allah Adam, the Gozer Alayim Shayahu Laoso Yom Laoso Shah. It tells us, I don't know how the Aleph, why the Aleph ends this, but it tells us that God Himself visits this suffering on people. 
In other words, puts them in a certain circumstance that something will happen. We shouldn't think that things are random or chance. They're not exclusively the function of the person who, who did the, uh, the violator. But Kosh Baruch Hu puts us in those positions as well. I don't know how you see that from the beginning with an Aleph and ending with an Aleph. So he has to pay him a hefty fee. But he doesn't get the death penalty. Says the Rashbam, what's an egg roof? The Pasuk said that he punches him with an Evan. Evan we know. Evan is a a rock, a stone. What's egg roof? Says the Rashbam, Says the Rashbam, an egg roof is a second type of a rock. For the Rashbam, it's a second type of a rock. It's a brick. How does he know that? Because the Pasuk was giving examples of Two people get in a fight, so what do you do? You take a, a rock, you reach for a rock on the side of the road, and you hit him in the head with the rock. So, Be'evan is one type of a rock, O Be'egrof, and Egrof is a brick, is the second type of a rock. So the Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, Shmuel Bameir, says that the Pasuk is bringing two examples of stones. A rock and a stone, or a rock and a brick. A hits B with a rock, and damages them, they have to pay the five things. The Ramban says, what are you talking about? Look at the Ramban. Alashan Rabbaseinu Egrof, who hayad... Egrof is not a rock. You know what an egrof is? A fist. When you turn your four fingers in, it looks like a rock. It looks like a boulder. It looks like a rock. You've turned your hand into a rock. You use it to hit. Says the Ramban, bringing examples from a number of uh, places in Mishnah's Gemara and Yeshayahu, that a grof is not another description of a rock, it's a description of a fist. So says the Ramban, for me it makes sense. According to the Rashbam, why did the Torah need to give two synonyms? You hit him with a rock or a brick, here's the law. Just say one and I'll know the other. Says the Ramban, for me it makes sense. The Torah is giving two examples. If you hit him in the head with a brick, I understand that we put him in prison until we see what happens with the victim. You hit him in the head with your fist, assuming you're not Rocky Balboa, okay, you know, there's a good likelihood he's going to survive. So maybe I would think you don't put Shimon and you don't put Ruvain in prison if he hit with his fist. Only if he hits with a rock comes along the pasuk and tells me no. If he hits either with a Evan or a Grof, either way you put him in prison to see what's going to be. So here we have a machlokas, a debate between the Ramban and the Rashbam on the very definition of a Grof. Is a Grof another rock or is a Grof the fist? Okay, there's a lot here. The, Ibn, the uh, Orachayim has some comments here. Um, look at the Ibn Ezra on Verapo Yerapei. Very interesting Ibn Ezra. Rav Abram, Avram Ibn Ezra, 11th century Spain. This is what I want to spend the bulk of our time on today. This Pasuk is the basis of the permissibility of practicing medicine. Now right away you'll say, why do I need a permissibility of practicing medicine? So we'll get to that in a moment. There's a few reasons why you might need it. So says the Ibn Ezra, from the very fact that the Torah obligates the perpetrator to have to pay the medical costs of the victim, what do we see? The Torah sanctions medical care. Because if the Torah didn't sanction medical care, it would say, what are you doing going to a doctor? Like Scientology, sit on the couch and pray that you get better. Why should I pay for your exorbitant Jewish doctor? Sit on the couch and pray. From the fact that the Torah says that the perpetrator is liable to pay for the victim's medical care, implicitly, the Torah is endorsing the practice of medicine. Rak kol chali shehu bifnim beguf biyad Hashem So here the Ibn Ezra says something very interesting. Internal illness, Hashem heals. 
וכן כוסף כי הוא יחיד ויחבש. וכוסף בעשה גם בחיול הדרס השם כי אם ברופאים. ונהיה כוסף הפריש. כי לא אמר ורפו ירפא מן הבניין הקל, רק ורפו ירפא שהוא מהבניין הכבד. ועוד הפרש זה היטב בפרשה זוס, וחכמינו קיבלו דברים אחרים עם אלה שניהם, כאשר קיבלו בשמיים כתור סמים ואין הכיסופים. ואיבן עזרא, הוא איזה גרמריאן, 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 ואיבן עזרא, הוא פוקסט על גרמר, אני אגיד את So he says it's limiting what we should turn to doctors for. There are illnesses that we should seek from doctors, a sense of healing, and then there are illness, illnesses that we should indeed rely on Hashem. The Avi Ezer, which is a super commentary on the Ibn Ezra, you may have it in your Mikroskidolos, you may not, he further explains. So the Avi Ezer explains, Kavanasu amashakasav lakaman. A person gets an internal illness. Why? Because they ate all the wrong things. We went on our little men's club, <laughs> our little men's club trip to New York. We, uh, it was, we, we emphasized the uh, Gashmias and the Ruchnias, the body and the soul. Yesterday we spent the day in YU learning in the base medrash. Rabbi Willie gave us a shear. We had lunch with Rabbi Brander in his office. We went to the Svarim sale. It was fantastic. But Monday we did the Dead Sea Scrolls and we visited the OU. And then Monday night we went to, at Chelsea Piers, with 1,500 or 2,000 of our closest friends, the <laughs> kosher food and wine experience. About 30 kosher vendors from the tri-state area have a booth showing off their best stuff. And about 30 or 40 different wine booths showing the best kosher wine. And it is a hedonistic... Orgy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the Aviezer says... Well said. The Aviezer says that when you do it, so you, your stomach hurts the next day, your cholesterol is up, your blood pressure is up, your sugars are up. So what are you turning to? That, that, you do that to yourself. That's riboy macha, you ate too much. Umishine avir, the air. V'adavik b'shem yechazek hachom v'aleicha b'koach hanashama v'az yechya ha'adam yoser mizman katsav. Sticking with Hashem, if you, if you stick with Hashem, you'll improve the temperature of your body and the le- level of moisture in your body using the neshama and then you'll live a long life. So your internal, in other words, the point is this. There are illnesses which are the result of our own lifestyle. So if you change your lifestyle, you control the illness. So the Torah is not mandating go to a doctor who's going to prescribe some medicine And you're going to continue to eat like a glutton, like some sick pig, but now you'll pop the pills at night before you go to sleep and you'll rely on the doctor. The Ibn Ezra says when it comes to certain illnesses, you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high this, high that. You know, 90% of it you could bring down at least the equivalent of what the pharmaceutical can do for you by, by eating properly and exercising. So when it comes to those types of illnesses, don't rely on the doctor. These internal illnesses change your lifestyle. That's the neshama. In other words, if you're sick, it's because there's something out of whack of your neshama. This is a fascinating Ibn Ezra. If you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, not, okay, I know there's genetic variables and there are exceptions to every rule. No one needs to write me an email later that I was insensitive. I understand. I understand. But I'm talking about on the whole. On the whole, people who are suffering from these poor indicators have terrible lifestyles. And what's the terrible lifestyle a reflection of? Which is triumphing over the other? The body or the soul? The body. The body is defeating the soul. When you sit down to eat, it's not the soul saying, I eat to live, and I'm going to choose healthy choices, and I'm going to eat only the amounts I need to live, and I'm going to get enough sleep, and I'm going to make sure to exercise and not be sedentary. It's the body defeating the soul. So when the body defeats the soul, the Ibn Ezra says, what are you going to a doctor? What are you prescribing medicines? Just have the soul defeat the body. Be much more disciplined in what you're eating and how you exercise and how you live and then you'll heal. And then you'll heal. L'chaim b'cholayim ha'boyim b'chutz l'amus kodem z'mano ha'kotzev k'mo misas mechama u're'eyo ma'keo b'seser says when should you go to Hashem? I'm sorry, when do you go to the doctor? When someone punches you in the nose and it's broken. When you need to have surgery which your lifestyle is not going to heal. If you get injured in war says the Ibn Ezra. You can read the rest of this Super commentary, Avi Ezra, but it's fascinating. He's saying, when is there a mandate for medicine? Something that you could not take care of yourself. 
But something you could take care of yourself, you're violating Torah by going to the doctor. You understand what a major paradigm shift this is? Western culture today where we live says, absolutely you have no responsibility for your health. Eat however you want, do whatever you want, and go to the doctor. He'll prescribe a medicine. He'll give you a statin. He'll give you something to lower your cholesterol, lower your blood pressure. Ah, you could lower it without having to pop any pill. But we don't want you to have to change and give up anything. So go to the doctor. So, and you'll say, and I don't understand, the Torah says, Varapo Medicine is endorsed by Torah. Says the Ibn Ezra, not that kind of medicine. The medicine that's endorsed by Torah is a medicine for something you couldn't heal on your own. But something that if you would simply emphasize your soul over your body, you could heal... Going to a doctor for that is not endorsed by the Torah. Not only is it not endorsed by the Torah, you're violating Torah by continuing to engage in a poor lifestyle and then going to a doctor to bail you out, you're violating the Torah's mandate of Arapo Yerapeh. Incredibly, Ben Ezra, no? Fascinating. Okay. Um, Medicare abuse. Yeah. Okay, you know what? There's much more to look at in the Pesukim, but go to the source sheets. So, if you're listening to this online, we're putting the source sheets online also. They should be on the same website. So, I thought I would take a few minutes, we have, and expand even further on this verse. So, source number one is the Pesuk we just saw. If A injures B, A is obligated in five things. One of them is... Medical expenses, comes along the Gemara and Baba Kama, source number two. Desanya, we learn in a Bryce of the Be'er Bishmal Omer, the Academy of Rabbi Shmuel, they taught, the Torah says, and heal, he shall heal. Mikan shenitein rishus l'rapos. From here we derive permission, the permissibility of practicing medicine. Now you should all be jumping up and saying, what are you talking about? Permissibility of practicing medicine? Why do I need to be told it's permissible? So if I tell you something that's permissible, what does that mean that you would have thought? One should have thought it's forbidden. The Torah has to go out of its way to say it's permissible. In other words, if the Torah hadn't said, if the Torah hadn't endorsed the practice of medicine, would I have thought that medicine is forbidden? Maybe. Why would I have thought that medicine is forbidden? Oh, so, one of two reasons. Rashi, source number three, says, you know why I would have thought that medicine is forbidden? Scientology. from the source three, Rashi. Because, again, we all take for granted. You're sick, you go to a doctor. But maybe theologically we should say, if God determined that so-and-so should be sick, who am I to reverse God's decision? If God determined so-and-so should be sick, I as the doctor, what right do I have to interfere with God's will? If God's will is that she should be sick, she should be sick, I as the doctor am not licensed to interfere with God's will. So Farashi, no, comes along the Torah and tells us, God says, absolutely interfere. I give you permission to heal. Tosva, source number four, goes even further. Why do you have to say Varapo Yirape? Why do we need the dual language? The double, and he shall heal, surely heal. Just say once. He's given permission to heal. Why the double verb? Because we have two ways that a person needs medical care. One is injured by man, and the other is a natural injury. So I might have thought, yeah, you know what? If you punch me in the eye, and I go to the doctor, that's when the doctor is given permission to heal. Because you're not interfering with God's will, you're correcting man's injury. But maybe if God gave an illness, the doctor is not entitled or licensed to heal. Comes along the second, Virapo Yirape. The doctor is given permission to interfere, a mandate to heal, both whether it's man-made injury or illness, or a natural illness or injury. So that's the first reason. Rashi and Tos will say, why would I have thought that it's forbidden to heal? You're interfering with God's will. Comes along the Torah and says, don't worry. God says, interfere, you have license to heal. The tour in the name of the Ramban, Nachman, source 5, 
Tana debater b'shmo of Rapoi Rapei second line shaloyomar mali l'tzayar azeh shema eta v'nimtesi horig nefashos b'shogig fushi yizar maod maod k'mashroy yizar b'dinin nefashos. This is the Torah's version of the Good Samaritan law. What's the Good Samaritan law? The Good Samaritan law says the following: I'm walking in town center mall. Someone lays, lets out a shreiz avek, a shriek, and collapses. I walk over and I see they have no pulse. So I'm about to start doing CPR on them and I say to myself, what am I, out of my mind? This is the most litigious society in the history of mankind. I'm going to crack a rib while I'm doing uh, CPR on this guy. Because by the way, the new CPR, you don't breathe in the mouth. The new version of CPR, you only put pressure on the chest. There's no breathing in the mouth. I don't know why it's political correctness. You're not supposed to kiss someone you don't know. I don't know what it is, but uh, there's no more uh, kissing, just uh, pushing. So I walk over, the guy drops, and I say, oh, I took a CPR course, and I'm about to lean down. I stop myself. I say, you know what? Keep walking. <laughs> I pretend you didn't see this, because what am I going to do? I'm going to do CPR. I'll bring the guy back to life. He's going to heal in the hospital, and instead of sending, sending me flowers and chocolates to thank me, I'm going to get a lawyer's letter saying he's suing me because I, I, I uh, cracked a rib. He has a little bruise in his chest where I gave the CPR. So the Good Samaritan law says that if you injure someone while trying to save their life, you're not liable. There's your indemni- indemnified, is that the right word? You're indemnified. So the Torah, the Ramban says, this is the Torah's version of the Good Samaritan Law. Why do I need to be told that a doctor is licensed to heal? Because you might have thought, why would I ever try to heal? Why would I try to save someone? You know how many doctors I know who when they fly and someone's sick and they say, is anyone aboard a doctor? They hide underneath the seat, under the life vest, under the oxygen mask, under, they hide. Because what happens, I'm not to fill out forms and if something goes wrong and I'm on my way to the vacation and the... The good doctor, Baruch Hashem, says right away, I'm a doctor. So what happens? So again, a doctor might say, you know what, I have the capacity to heal, but I'm not going to try to heal, because why take on the liability? Verapo Yirape says, in the process of healing, you don't have liability. It's the Torah's version of indemnification. Verapo Yirape, in the process of healing, you're not liable. That's the Ramban's reason. Source 6, the Rambam gives a third reason. It's nothing to do with interfering with God's will. And it's nothing to do with liability. Says the Rambam, when you heal, by definition, you're violating a Torah law. What's the Torah law? You're not allowed to injure someone. And when you do surgery, you're cutting someone wide open. That in another context, you'd be liable for. And when you examine someone, you might hurt them. You might bruise them, so on. So the process of medicine requires the violation of a Torah law called Chavala. You're not allowed to injure or damage. So therefore, for the Rambam, why did the Torah have to give permission for a doctor to heal? Because the permission is to say that, that repairing the person's illness supersedes the violation of Chavala, of damaging them. Ah, that's obvious to us today. Of course today we say, do what you have to do, cut me open if it's to heal me. But... It wasn't always obvious. Why was it obvious that you could injure someone to heal them? That's the Torah's law. It's permissible to injure someone to heal them. So we see the Gemara derives from the verse that we saw. A doctor is licensed to heal. According to the Torah, Torah endorses medicine. Unlike Scientology and other forms of religion, Torah endorses. Ah, why did the Torah have to give permission? Why would I have thought it's forbidden? Rashi says, maybe you're interfering with God's will. The Ramban says, no. Because you need to indemnify the physician. Why would he take the liability on? So the Torah indemnifies him by saying, go heal, there's no risk. The Rambam says, because the doctor is going to say, I don't want to heal, I'm going to violate Torah. When I cut the person open, I'm violating a prohibition to hurt. Torah says, we waive the prohibition. For you, in the context of healing, we're waiving the prohibition. Source number seven. Commentary of the Panam Yafos. Anyone know who wrote the Panam Yafos? Rav Pinchas Halevi Horowitz. He lived in the 18th century. He's better known as the author of his work, the Hafla. So he writes, "Ma rabusa yishpakach shenitna roshus l'ropei l'rapos harimachalon shabbos apikuach nefesh." Especially for the Rambam's reason, why would I have thought that not hurting someone is more important than healing them? Ah, I could save their life. Don't do it because it would require you to cut them open. So the Torah has to say you could cut. What? Why would I have thought that? After all, I know. Am I allowed to violate if I have a conflict between the laws of Shabbos and saving a life? What do I do? I save a life. 
So if I already have a precedent that when there's a conflict between saving a life and a law, what do I do? I save the life. So certainly when there's a conflict between saving a life and injuring, I would know that I save a life. So what do I need the verse to give me permissibility? I already know it from learning that I can even violate Shabbos to save a life. You understand the question? Yes. Good. Ela shayisa omer shasar likach schar alzeh kidin kol mitzvah shasar lasos b'schar ba'pasuk zehu malamed shetzarich l'shalim schar arofe shemutar litain schar. Where the doctors? You love this comment. But you have to explain. Do you know why you need the pasuk? Because you're right. I would have known that I am licensed to heal if saving a life supersedes Shabbos, then certainly saving a life supersedes my prohibition to injure. But who says I could get paid for doing it? Maybe I'm obligated to save the life. If I have the training, if I have the capacity, if I have the skills to save a life, then the Torah says you're entitled to. Don't worry about interfering with God's will. And don't worry about liability. And don't worry about the fact that you're going to damage someone. But who says I'm entitled to collect payment? That's From here we derive the permissibility of a doctor to heal and to get paid for it. And to get paid for it. That's the commentary of the Panamiyachos. Now, continuing. The Gemara in Kedushin makes a curious statement. So as much as I just earned favor with the doctors, I'm about to lose it. Easy come, easy go. The Gemara says the following: Abagurion ish tzadyan Omer mishem Abaguria. Abagurion of Sidon used to quote Abaguria as saying the following, and he had a whole list of sayings here. A man should not teach his son to be a donkey driver, a camel driver, a wagon driver, a sailor, a shepherd, a storekeeper, because their trade is the trade of robbers, meaning that these trades lend themselves to dishonesty, and. Rabbi Yehuda, Omer, Rabbi Yehuda said, in the same name of this Abba Gurion, most donkey drivers are evildoers, and most camel drivers are righteous men. In other words, there's, there's certain uh, businesses that leave themselves open to dishonesty. But I'll give you an example, and I don't mean to, again, please don't be offended, but if I, an, an obsessive compulsive person should not become a lawyer who charges by the hour. Because you charge someone for 60 minutes, but two of those minutes, your wife called, you responded to a text, you, your, your mind wandered for a minute, you started thinking about the vacation in three weeks from now, but you billed for 60 minutes, of which one minute your mind was wandering. So certain businesses uh, lend themselves to a uh, challenge of being entirely honest. So the Gemara lists that these are people, don't go into these businesses. Most sailors are pious men. Sailor, well, what are you going to do wrong being a sailor? Pious men. You ready? Now what about doctors? Says Abagurion, Tov Shebarofim. Oh, even the best doctors are going to hell. So my kids would say, H-E double hockey sticks. Even the best of physicians are destined for Gehenna. And even the most righteous of animal slaughters are partnered with Amalek. You could go on and read the rest. So this is a very... What does this mean? What does this mean? Why did Abagurion and Rabbi Yehuda quoting Abagurion, the best doctor, not the worst doctors, we're not talking about somebody who fakes, they don't have a license, they're incompetent, they stayed up all night drinking and then they go to perform. We're not talking, we're talking about the best doctors. Which of course we only have, every Jew has, right? That's Jackie Mason's routine. My doctor is the best doctor. The other doctors go to my doctor, you know know the whole routine. So the best doctor, the best doctor is going to get him. What does that mean? What does that mean? Says Rashi, Says Rashi a few things. Number one, number one, the doctor often the practice of medicine breeds arrogance. It breeds arrogance. How does it breed arrogance? Because a person feels, look at me. The person came in sick. I fixed them. I fixed people. They have problems, I take them away. They have pain, I make them better. They're sick, I heal them. Look at the power in my hands. I'm a healer. It breeds arrogance. It's challenging to feel humility. So Tov Shebarofim Lagehanim, the best of doctors, can't help but be vulnerable to arrogance. They don't break their heart to God. They don't realize 
God's role, His hand. And the Yeshbara, this is interesting for the you know, medical, medical care debates. A doctor has the skill set to heal the poor, but says, you know, I described that once in a while, the age of our congregation, Florida, the heat, the summer, we have a few times a year someone goes down in shul. So what happens? I look for not the doctors, of which they're swarming, a hundred of them right away. I look for the former Hatzalah guys, the EMTs. First of all, the doctors, many of them, I don't know when's the last time they took someone's blood pressure themselves. You know, they have nurses that do that. But second of all, the doctors are yelling, what kind of insurance do you have? I'm just joking. God forbid. God forbid. God forbid. The doctors all take care of them. They're great. The doc- our doctors are fantastic. I want you to know our doctors, Mama Sharp, we have an amazing Maimonides Society. I could call any of our 140 plus doctors and say, I have an indigent person who needs care, they don't have insurance. Not only do they say, I'll see him, they'll say, send him to the office now. I'll get him in. We have the best doctors. They're not going to get him. Our doctors are going to Olam Haba. But Rashi notices, Rashi says, there is a trend among, among physicians, medical practitioners, that they went for all that schooling and all the fellowships and all the residency and all of the everything they develop the skill set why should they take care of a poor person who's not going to pay them for their skill set so they don't want to take care of someone who's not going to pay so says Rashi that's why they're going to Gehenna you have the skill set to be able to save lives and you're not going to treat people who can't pay you're going to Gehenna I'm not talking about universal health care here. I'm not making any comments on it. I'm not saying Rashi's making comments. There is a Jewish ethic, though, of making sure that people can be treated. Who should pay for it? How it should be structured? I'll leave to my brother. He's the ethicist you know, who deals with this stuff. But, uh, but that's Rashi. That's how Rashi interprets Tov Shebaro from the Gehenim. Says the Maharsha, Rav Shmuel Eidel's, in 1555 to 1631 in Poland. Says the Marsha, a commentary found in the back of the Gemara, Yesh lafarish tov shebarofim dahainu shemachzik atzmo latov olamumcha shebarofim shein kamohu v'somech biyoser ala ma'achaso mitoch ga'avoso ulufamim hu tov beteva zeachola umemis esachola berfuosov bedava shemazik l'chol zeh ava yesh lalisa v'liteinim shara rofim kevin shu sarkanas nefashos You know what happens? Doctors all think I'm the best. Second opinion? Refer to someone else? Why would I do that? They should refer to me. They should all use me as the second opinion. So a person, a patient comes in and presents a case. And it's a very, very, very questionable thing. What's the right treatment? What's the right therapy? What should be done? Is it being diagnosed correctly? The humble doctor will say, I need to consult. I need to call in a consult. But the arrogant doctor says, Eh, looks like this to me, and I'm as smart as it gets, and if that's how it looks to me, and I'm as smart as it gets, we'll go with that. Have the surgery, take this medicine, go for this chemo. But you're talking about life and death, says the Marsha. Life and death. So the arrogant doctor who fails to consult, the arrogant doctor who fails to get a second opinion is going to get Hanem. Why? Because they may be liable for murder. They may have blood on their hands. Because if someone died, because the doctor very flippantly, you know, was, wasn't really paying attention, had trouble at home, you know, there was backed up 17 more people in the waiting room. So they said, yeah, it, it looks like this, it's this, take six of these pills. Maybe they're allergic to that pill. Maybe it was a diagnosis they missed. So Tov Shebaro from the Gehenim, because doctors are susceptible and vulnerable to arrogance and therefore to not consulting. That's the Marsha. The Ben Yehoyada, source 11. Who's the Ben Yehoyada? Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, also the author better known as the Ben Ishchai, 19th century Baghdad. He writes the following: Nearly b'siyata d'shmai harofe she'ena pikeach umumcha lo yismach al daito latei samim charifim tkifim eliyitein samim kalim pshutim asherim lo yailu vaday lo yaziku dimkain ein takala yotza misibaso. Says the Ben Yehoyada, doctors are very worried about their record. Doctors are worried about their record. Doctors don't want to take on complicated cases or very high-risk cases. Doctors don't want blemishes on their record. So when it comes to prescribing, they're going to prescribe the least risky um, therapy, whether it's surgery, whether it's medicine. Doctors will always go with the least risky, says the Ben Yada, so that, because if you go with the high risk and something bad happens, now you've got a lawsuit on your hands. Now you've got 
you know, you check online, seeing the doctor's record, now you see that uh, he lost someone on the table. Mm-hmm. So what will happen if he gave the wrong therapy because he took the less risky one? Okay, so if the person dies because they got sicker, uh, what can the doctor do? The sickness, the illness took them. But if they died because they went the high-risk route, and they died from the surgery or the medicine, which was high risk, the doctor's not going to want that. The family and the friends won't say, the illness took them. They'll say, that doctor killed my so-and-so. So since doctors worry about that liability, therefore they always take the low-risk route. But taking the lower-risk route means that they're going to lose patience. Then you have the opposite extreme. Some doctors are so arrogant, they think that they are, they are so confident in the course of therapy. And they say they give a medicine. And the medicine's not working, they say we got to up the dosage. And they're upping the dosage and upping the dosage to high risk levels. So you have the opposite extreme, where they're so arrogant that they're not worried at all that they could lose the patient and therefore on the both extremes the, the net result is tov from the Gehenim the net result is when you're dealing with life and death whether you're erring on the side of not wanting to risk or you're erring on the side of going super high risk you're dealing with life and death and therefore tov shebarofim the Gehenim the Eitz Yosef right source 12 Yesh rofim balei gava so here now the doctors will like this explanation. It means tov sheberofim. The Eitz Yosef redefines it. Not that the best of doctors are going to Gehenim, but Tov Sheberofim. Among the doctors, those that hold themselves to be the best, they're the ones going to Gehenim. Meaning, it's not that all doctors and even the best are going to Gehenim. It means that a doctor who lives with humility and says, I always have further training I could do. I can always learn more. I always look to consult. I'm always looking to speak to my colleagues and get other opinions. That doctor... It's not going to Gehenim, they're going to Olam Haba. The Tov Sheberofa means among the doctors, the one who holds himself out to be Tov the best, that one is going to Gehenim. The Ramban, will end here, we don't have time to go for the Ramban. The Ramban, by the way, was himself a doctor. Most people know that the Rambam was a doctor, Maimonides was a doctor. But the Ramban is himself a doctor as well. So the Ramban here talks about how a doctor should function, what a doctor... He has a book called Torah Sa'adam. It's not his commentary on Chumash, it's not his commentary on Shas. This is a book he has, you could find it, Chevelle republished it in two volumes called Kisve Haramban. In that two volumes is this short book called Torah Sa'adam. In his, in his book, it's the chapter Shar HaSakana, and he talks about the responsibility of being a doctor, how a doctor should conduct themselves. So all of this comes from the Pasuk in our parasha, from the very fact that the Torah endorses that you can collect the cost of, uh, of, uh, of uh, medical care, means the Torah is endorsing medical care. Why would I have thought that it's prohibited? Interfering with God's will, liability, because the doctor is going to have to violate chavala, damaging a person, and then the statement Tov Shabarov from the game. Everyone's invited, encouraged to stay 12.15, go get lunch, come back. 12 minutes, Dr. Levy's fantastic talk on Sinas Chinam.